Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Today's guest is Jonathan Bechtel. Jonathan is the Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel at the Foundation for Government Accountability. As COO, he specializes in building systems that scale with the organization's rapid growth. And as general counsel, he works to ensure FGA's compliance with state and federal laws in the 38 states they operate. Prior to joining FGA, Jonathan worked as the COO and later the CEO of the Freedom Foundation, a free market think tank based in Olympia, Washington. He holds a degree in family and youth counseling from TELUS Institute International and received a law degree from the Oakbrook College of Law. Real quick before we get started, our team has a training coming up that you may be interested in. I'll share more details in a little bit, but for now, on to the show. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Trevor. I'm really glad to be here. So just to start, Jonathan, how did you get involved in running a nonprofit and getting involved in fundraising? Yeah, it's not one of those things that you dream about as a small child. No, it was honestly by accident almost. I was finishing law school. And the place where I was working, which I guess was a nonprofit, didn't have a spot for me to go kind of higher up. So a friend of mine had just gone to work for this thing called a think tank, which I had no idea what a think tank was in the public policy world and said there was a job there for me working on actually a ballot security, like stolen votes, those kinds of things, which I knew nothing about. But when you're young and it's a job and it sounds like a good opportunity, you take it. So I moved from Virginia to Washington State to join the Freedom Foundation as just a policy analyst. This was back in the early 2000s and got a chance to work in the policy world for them and then moved into the litigation world. We sued government to protect people and that was a lot of fun, but found myself more and more drawn to kind of the management and operations side of the organization and got a chance after a few years there to partner up with the CEO, become the COO of the organization. And that brought me into this fundraising world. Several years after that, I became the CEO, as you mentioned, of Freedom Foundation. And that's when the whole fundraising thing really hit me in the face. And I realized I didn't know anything and I needed to learn a lot. And it was kind of a tough journey for the next few years of learning on the job. So I now am grateful for things like seven-figure fundraising, which I dearly wish they'd been around back when I was trying to fundraise for my organization. But I had a lot to learn is kind of what I took away from it. Right. But it's a very classic path where you're an expert in the work of the organization, then you keep getting promoted. And then one day it's like, oh, and you have this big thing called fundraising you have to do. Good luck. (laughs) Right. And it's a very constant thing because it's amazing how motivating that is when you have to pay people's paychecks and people are depending on you. Yeah. What advice, if you could go back in time and give Jonathan Bechtel advice on fundraising, what would be the one advice you'd give yourself? So this will sound a bit like pandering, but it really is what you guys teach, which is to sit down and really figure out what my message was and what my big ask was. Because I was just, without having someone to help me do that and to having someone tell me I needed to do that, it just became, I would go, I'd have a conversation, it'd be a little project conversations, I'd see what the donor wanted. I never really naturally organically figured out how to create that big ask around a big vision that could have helped change the dynamics of the organization. And so that I think would be have been the biggest change for me. And it's the thing when I first came into FGA, which we'll talk about in a moment, when I first came to FGA that I realized was so different that something I'd never done is I'd never really developed a story or a pitch that I could tell a donor that would give them a big vision for what we were trying to do. 
Right. Well, and I think one of the cool things we're going to talk about in a second is how do you implement the big vision? Like it's not just having the big vision. It's actually how do you plan a big vision to actually execute it? But before I get into that, you moved from Olympia, Washington to Naples, Florida. I imagine that's a little bit of a culture difference. Uh, what was the biggest difference you noticed moving across the coast? Yeah, it's actually like what wasn't different. Just about <laughs> everything was. So I went to the most conservative county of we suddenly had 360 days of sun, which I was used to not seeing the sun for nine months. The one big downer for me was that the coffee really sucks in South Florida. In <laughs> Seattle, Olympia, you get used to amazing coffee and coffee roasters on every corner. My church had a barista bar in the back, you know. And then you come here and there's like two Dunkin' Donuts, uh, which barely even counts as coffee in my view. So that was a tough transition. Right. Yeah, I bet. I have a uh, friend who's uh, Austrian, and he refers to that sort of coffee as Schloda coffee, which means mud water. So he can relate, I think, especially in Florida. So what I want to talk to you, and part of the reason for having you on the show, was you've really been good at creating systems that work really well as organization scale. And when you started with FGA, the organization was about $2 million in annual revenue. And now six years later, it's around $13 million between C3 and C4. So what's been the biggest challenge for you to navigate as you've gone through this massive amount of growth? Yeah, it's a great question. So really, my secret to any kind of success in operations is I'm good at stealing ideas from other people. I read a lot, I listen a lot, and I talk to a lot of people and when I see good ideas, I grab them. And so I think one of the bigger challenges with the growth is once we got to a certain point, it was harder and harder to find models of what other people had done that I could apply that I knew worked, right? So even in our own space, we got pretty big and there weren't a lot of other people that I was talking to that had experienced and gotten through successfully some of the challenges we started to face. So I had to kind of get more creative in trying to find new places to get help from of just how do you navigate these organizational growth issues, people issues, execution issues, whatever it might be, of finding stuff that people already tried that worked that I could grab onto and try to apply to FGA. Right. And at that point, you guys were doubling about every 18 to 24 months. Is that about right? Yeah, sometimes faster. And there was a couple of points where we doubled in 12 months. So it was pretty fast growth and trying to keep up with that. Again, a fun challenge, but nonetheless a challenge. Right. And so for other nonprofits, when they're growing quickly in that like really rapid growth stage, where do you see things break down? Is there certain sizes where you see like personnel issues break down or systems or like, is there any rules of thumb for people to think about as they're experiencing this level of growth? Yeah, I think this is, it's a really fascinating question of like business growth and when you hit ceilings, if you will, as an organization is how I, I tend to think of it. And so, yeah, I think there are a couple of ceilings just at least so far, and I'm sure there are more we haven't hit yet, but there's a ceiling you hit when you get beyond what you think of as just like the inner circle of where there's five of you, you can all talk to each other every week, you can have pretty efficient planning calls that include everybody. So that's probably within that, you know, first couple of people up to maybe 10 max, where it starts to get bogged down with having that many people in conversations and you can't always be in all the meetings together. So that's a pivot point or a ceiling that you hit. And then I think another one is when you get to probably the mid-20s or 30 or so, where you have to have some layers and you start to no longer have really close relationships with people in your organization. Before that, you probably hired everyone. You can still see everyone on a pretty regular basis, have like a direct relationship. But when you get to that 30 or 35 stage, as a leader, you no longer are directly have a relationship with everyone. You have to kind of depend on others to 
pass the message on or have feedback loops. And that's a whole different ballgame. So that feels like a couple different ceilings that you hit in those growth periods. So basically around like three employees, you know, where it's everyone doing each other's job, then 10, then 30, roughly around those points. That's what it's felt like. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And what's the difference between like what you find at 10 employees, what you have to change versus what you have to change at 30? So there are different things, but in reality, they're kind of similar pivot points where it's a point at which you just need a different kind of structure and you have to empower people in different ways. So at 10 people, you have to have a little different structure than you had at three because at three, like you said, you're all generalists. We all kind of help each other out. At 10, you have to have some level of structure because I can no longer like tell people what needs to happen every day, for instance, right? There has to be some structure where everyone knows what we're working on and can stay focused on the mission. That's the same thing you need at 30. It's just, you have to have a different setup to do that because what worked for 10 probably isn't going to work for 30. It's more complicated. It's more complex. There's a lot more people involved, but the needs are the same. They're actually pretty simple of people have to know what the vision is. They have to know where they fit in the organization. They have to know what do I need to do today to help move us toward that vision? So the needs are kind of the same. It's just how you address those needs it just has to be different because of the number of people. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to dive into that vision part in just a second. One of the things I like about talking with you, Jonathan, is how you pull ideas from the for-profit world and then you apply them to the nonprofit world. And we had an interview a few weeks ago with Taryn talking about how they have the connector and the cultivator and the closer model, basically taking a business-to-business sales model that worked really well for Salesforce and then applying it to a development shop and how successful that's been. And that was your idea. You kind of were the brainchild behind that and help implement it and put it throughout FGA. But how do you find these ideas and then tweak them so they work in the nonprofit world? Well, thanks for giving me credit for another idea I stole from someone. Uh, I think it really starts with understanding the problems and sort of the gaps that exist. So in this particular instance, this was an answer to a problem that I would kind of seen and felt for a long time. To take it back to kind of a personal place, when I was at Freedom Foundation, I fired people in my development shop for not being superstars, basically, where there's this sense that you had in development of when you hired a VP of development or a head of development, They need to be great at everything and need to be able to bring money in the door. And if they're not bringing money in the door, they're worthless. I'm being a little harsh, but that's kind of what it feels like. And so I fired people for not being able to do that, but felt all along that there was something missing of just the way that the departments were set up and the fundraising was done just didn't quite make sense. And it seemed so hard to find the right talent and the right mix of people. It almost felt like it was just completely luck. Like there was no rhyme or reason. You just had to hope that you got the right person, that everything was perfect. So when we hit a point where we were trying to figure out, okay, what does structure look like for us? And we were struggling with some internal, where do we go from here on development a little bit? I was reading stuff. And as you mentioned, I read a book by um, the guy that built up Salesforce's sales team. And he talked about this concept of specializing that really fundraising, if you break it down, has these different distinct pieces and each piece requires a different kind of talent, different kind of person. And it just finally clicked of like, that's the answer I've been looking for for a long time of it's not that you're trying to find a superstar. It's that you're trying to find people that fit like these special niches that if you put them all together, they're a superstar. But individually, they're the kind of talent you can find in a lot of places. It's not that hard to find them and you can give them ownership of their piece And even if they don't actually bring the money in, they can fill an extraordinarily valuable role. 
so you can make it easier to get that money in the door. I really loved it and grabbed onto it because it answered that problem. And I think sort of that bigger question there is it's helpful just to always be thinking about what is the thing I'm trying to solve? What are the gaps in my fundraising or my operations? And if you can see the gap and you look for answers, it's amazing where they show up in different places, but you kind of have to be looking for it. Right. It's that whole attitude that this has probably been solved somewhere, but it's probably a lateral industry or something slightly different. And it just hasn't been brought over to this section of the world. Yeah, I found the Salesforce thing because I was thinking, this is a sales problem. Everyone deals with sales problems. It doesn't matter if you're nonprofit or for-profit. There has to be someone that's tried to work on this in a sales context. So I was just looking for like sales teams and organizational structures for sales teams. And I searched for several months and then I came across this. So that's right. I have to take a broader view of what is this actual thing I'm trying to function, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit. It's just a particular problem that probably shows itself in a bunch of industries. Yeah. Right. Well, and it also speaks a lot to you on being curious enough where a lot of people might not look at sales books, you know, because they tend to be, I don't know, salesy, you know, for lack of a better term. And it's not necessarily like what a nonprofit does, but being willing to say, you know, they probably have this figured out in this other area. Let's see what solutions they've come up with. Well, maybe this is where it's helpful that I felt like I really struggled with the sales and fundraising and didn't feel personally very equipped for it. So I'm much more open to ideas. That's great. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about implementing a big vision. One of the challenges I think a lot of organizations have as they come up and they create this pitch, they have this big vision of where they want to go, but then what they do once a check comes in. And we talked with Leslie Graves a little bit about her system that she implements at Ballotpedia, but you guys use a slightly different system. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk to you about the system that you use, the traction system, and what that is and how it works. Yeah, let me give you just quick context for how we came across it. We mentioned about how I look for ideas and things. So I've read a lot of business books. And I think I really heard recently something like 1,500 new business books every year that come out, some massive number. And I love a lot of them. But the thing I always felt like was missing was the really, really practical of how do I take this amazing idea that other people did, whether it was in Good to Great or any of these other books, and apply it in my own business. Like I just need something really practical. Just tell me how to do it and let me try it. So when I came to FGA, Taryn handed me this book called Traction, as you mentioned the name. And the thing I loved about the book was that it didn't really have any new philosophy or business ideas in it. It was all kind of the same ones I'd read before. But what it was, was just a set of simple tools of how do you actually implement good business ideas in your company to deal with things like not having a clear vision or not having good execution of that vision or having kind of people issues or folks were on the same page or there was lack of trust or, or any of those kinds of common problems we all run into. And so the book Traction had these simple tools. So I picked out one of them that I thought made a lot of sense and decided to implement it. This was about four years ago. And it was this idea of how do you take a big vision as you're talking about and just make it practical? What do I do today about that vision? The philosophy came from Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits. He talks about this Uh, He calls it rocks, where if you had rocks, pebbles, gravel, and sand and water and put them all in a bucket, if you put the water, sand, pebbles, gravel in first, you'll never fit the rocks. If you put the rocks in first, the rest of it all fits. The idea with that is start with the most important things first, and the other little distractions of the day will fit in. If you'd start with the distractions of the day first, you'll never get the big things done. So the idea of attraction was figure out 
in the next 90 days, what are the three to five big rocks, if you will, that you need to get done in order to move the vision of the company forward? These are like the big things that if you do them, the company will be different, like in a different place 90 days from now. Those kind of game-changing things and focus on those first and the rest will come along with it. And then hold yourself accountable to it in 90 days. Sit down with your team and actually say, is it done or not done? And then go through that every 90 days. So we implemented that four years ago with everyone on the team. We all could see him. It was very transparent. And it was transformational in our ability to just know whether we're on track, what everyone is working on, so we can see if one of us is kind of out of alignment with each other. And it always brought us back every 90 days to those big goals, that big vision that we had sold to a donor because we'd be asking every 90 days, you know, what's the next three to five things I need to get done in the next 90 days. So it created this great just rhythm of execution that was always just kind of stayed focused on the vision. And do people pick their own rocks or as a leader, do you help them pick their rocks? Both actually. So we start out first as a leadership team. This is again, every 90 days. And we as a leadership team say, what are the five to seven most important things the company needs to get done in the next 90 days? And we try to stay as few as possible, like less is more is the mantra, because you got to keep this stuff simple. So if there's only four, that's great. We don't try to build a sheet. We take those and we give someone accountability for those, usually someone on the leadership team. But let's say one of them is to have a certain number of ask meetings in the next quarter for our development team. That might be something that actually three people need to do something about to get that done. And so that might turn into that company rock on three people's sheets. So that would be a rock that was given to them because the company's you know, leadership team sees this as the most important thing for the company. So maybe someone gets one rock from the company, but then they come up with one or two other things of their own rocks of maybe one of their rocks this quarter is to implement a new system for prospecting or to hire a researcher for prospecting, those kinds of things that would just be on their level. And that that together, that would make up their list of, let's say, three rocks for the next 90 days. Right. And I like the whole coming up with it on 90 days at a time, because that kind of forces this cadence of accountability with people. You don't run into these issues where we're in the holiday season now and we're recording this. And for a lot of businesses, not a lot of work slows down between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And for other businesses, like their busiest time of year, but you kind of avoid some of these seasonality because you're holding yourself accountable in this 90-day cadence. That's right. It's just a kind of a human nature of 90 days is about as far out as we can plan really effectively because too many things change after that. And also... After about 90 days, if I haven't really reconnected with the exciting vision, I can get a little bit burned out on it. But if I come back to it, re-examine it, get to have a conversation with my team about how are we doing, you know, we're on track, we've got a bunch of great things done, what's the next set, that provides a great kind of moment to have a little bit of inspiration to the team again and make sure everyone's still on track with the big vision. Right. And how do you avoid this problem where... We're all kind of optimistic about what we can accomplish in a short amount of time, or at least I am. And like, you know, sometimes you look at your goals from a few months ago and you're like, wow, I really believed I could get all that stuff done. Like, how do you balance reality with also wanting to push your team? Yeah, it's a great question. So the system as you go will show that up. So if every 90 days I'm having to be accountable for, did I actually get it done? And did I even know it got done? So if I say my rock is something like plan a new campaign, at the end of 90 days, how do I know if that's done or not? Did I plan it? Did I actually create a plan? Like, did I tell people? And so it actually only took about six months or so. So two cycles of this for people to kind of get the idea of 
as just a competitive, normal human being, I want to be able to say, I got all of my rocks done. And so I'm going to be more careful about how I set them and how I predict so I can be better at that kind of prediction. So that's a piece of it. The other piece, and we worked on just this rock 90 day piece for a couple of years and then decided to actually adopt the rest of the tools that the traction lays out. And one of the tools is kind of a pulse where it actually becomes part of the weekly meeting for each team to check in very quickly on each person's rocks and just say, are you on track or off track? And so every week I don't have to defend myself. It's not some big inquisition or anything, but I just have to take a moment and think about and answer that question of, am I on track with these rocks? So hopefully unless I'm just completely clueless, that gives me a moment to think about that and make sure and kind of stay on track with it as we go through the 90 days. So just to dive in a little deeper on that, those meetings work where, you know, you say you have 10 people on the phone and they just go through and say, are you on track or off track? And you just say yes or no, or how do you ask that question in those sort of meetings? So many meetings that we uh, are involved in, and I'm sure every industry, but it feels like nonprofits have a lot are the whole meeting is just reporting out and explaining what I did and sort of justifying my existence a little bit. And those can be death by meeting uh, kind of thing. So there's actually a specific meeting agenda that everyone follows where, yes, everyone goes around and says done or not done, but it's actually kept to a five-minute element in that meeting and it can't go any longer than that. So you're actually like not allowed in that meeting to talk about if you're off track or on track, you just answer the question. And then there's a portion of the meeting for issues where if I'm off track and I need to talk to about it, I can say that. And then later on in the meeting, we can have that conversation, but we get really quickly through the reporting piece and just get sort of that value of being able to say I'm on track or not off track, which is really all you need to check in with people. Right. And that makes a lot of sense, especially delaying talking about the problem until the sort of latter half of the meeting, because that could consume the entire time. Oh, we've all been in meetings like that that got taken off track by one person's issue and all of us just listen for a half hour, right? Right. You feel like you're being held hostage at some That's level. exactly right. Yeah. Right. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our upcoming seven-figure fundraising workshop, this February 26th through 28th in Alexandria, Virginia. We'll be teaching the seven-figure fundraising system and how to grow your existing major donors and find new ones. This is an intimate workshop where we limit it just to 24 people so you can have one-on-one coaching so you can leave feeling confident, knowing exactly what to say at your next donor meeting. Here's what some of our past attendees have said best thing I've ever done. I am so excited to have learned even more than I thought I could ever know. I've been reminded just how much I've forgotten about fundraising, about fundamental habits, developing consistency, thinking of new ways to attack the same problem. It's all covered in the seven-figure fundraising workshops. I recommend them highly. The coaching has been phenomenal, unlike anything I've been a part of in, in a dozen years of fundraising. This workshop is crucial if you really want to grow your nonprofit and it's worth the time, the energy and the money because you're making a true investment into your nonprofit organization and most importantly into you, the person who's executing it. This is going to make my life a lot easier because now I have the tools necessary to be more successful. To learn more, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com where you can sign up for the workshop or schedule a call with me to answer any questions you have about the workshop. I hope you'll join us in February. Now, back to the interview. 
So talk to us about what happened like a year later, you started this process. What did you guys find was the difference at FGA after starting implementing all of this? Yeah, I put some thought into this. And again, there's a uh, multiple different pieces. There's actually 12 different tools that uh, traction or the bigger system is called the entrepreneurial operating system, EOS, has you work through. So we've implemented all 12 of these tools. And let me just contrast it a little bit because I was thinking about the difference here. I think at the beginning of the year, we thought that we were an agile company, like good at quick decision making and really good at changing with the times. But we realized what actually it felt like with everyone else in the company is that we were just arbitrary uh, with our decisions and people just had no clue where we were going to go next. I think we also assumed that we were really collaborative, that people got a chance to be part of conversations, but found out what really people thought was like, who was actually in charge of this place? Like that's kind of how it felt like to people of uncertainty of where the decisions were coming from. And I think probably most importantly, I felt like at the beginning of, this was about a year ago, I thought I had a leadership team People talk about leadership teams a lot, but what I really had was a work group, which is a group of people that are all in the same room who all there kind of for their own departments and looking out for, you know, what do I need to do versus a team that actually was kind of a cohesive, we're all here for the organization. What's the best thing for the organization? Put egos aside. We're here to solve problems. I didn't actually have that. So a year later, I think all three of those things are different. Now, I think we are not arbitrary. I think we're still pretty agile, but people know very clearly, this is the direction we're going in. The vision is clear to everyone. People have a much better sense of who's in charge. It's now on paper exactly who's accountable for every part of the organization and who those people report to so that there's no lack of certainty anymore. And again, most importantly, I think we actually have a real leadership team now where it's a group of people that have a lot of clarity about where they fit into the organization, but have moved beyond just being there for their department and being a team of five people that are here for the organization that have learned how to solve problems together, have built trust together, and can lead the organization as a team, rather than just as a group of people that are sort of following orders from the founder and CEO. And so major shifts in all that. But again, I think the biggest piece of it is having built that leadership team, created that clear vision, and having, if you will, kind of sum it up, a much healthier organization that can actually execute on the big vision. Right. And what's interesting, what you just said, is I think from a leadership standpoint, what we sometimes think as nimble and we're agile organization is something where from the outside, it looks arbitrary because as a leader, you think a lot about these decisions or strategic changes, but then from a staff or an employee level, it's like, okay, well, we were doing this all the way up until now, and now we're changing. Whereas a leader, you might've thought about it for three or four months, but you hadn't communicated that difference. So I think that's an interesting point. How did you go about changing the team so that everyone was focused more on the organization versus the department? Because I think that's a natural thing for people to try to do where you try to defend your people, defend your department. And that's almost what you're expected because budgets are broken up by departments and it's just more how companies are typically run. How do you kind of break that mindset and make them more collaborative? Yeah, I'm not sure there's any shortcut to it. It's a little bit of a, not a painful process, I don't want to call it that, but a process that forces you to grow quite a bit, a challenging process. Really what it was about was having a group of people, uh, a leadership team that had kind of a basic trust in each other, that were all there for the good of the company, and then just working through sort of our biggest issues together as a group. And there was some great tools along the way that helped us do that of just thinking through 
how we were structured and how do we restructure so that we can grow without it becoming chaos. We worked through, did we have the right people in the right seats in the organization? We worked through like, what are the metrics we should be following as an organization? What numbers really matter and which ones don't? Kind of all those biggest issues that anyone leading a business or even a team, like they confront those, but actually like working through those and solving them as a team and kind of having the hard discussions around those because everyone has their own opinions and their own thoughts on those. Doing that together has developed us into a leadership team, but also through that kind of shared understanding of why we've made the decisions we've made. And so we can kind of all be in lockstep on them of this is what we've done and there were good reasons behind it. And it's not an arbitrary decision like we all have wrestled with them for several months at a time sometimes. So I'm not sure that there was a shortcut there, but the great thing that EOS has helped us do is it gave us a structure to do that of, okay, which conversation do you start with? And then what's the second one that you do? And then what's the third thing that you tackle? And then when you get through like all the big ones that have been on the back burner, how do you then make sure you deal with new stuff as it comes up and kind of problem solve together so that nothing builds up in the back corner until it finally blows up because either you don't know as a leader or you don't want to confront those things. So again, no real shortcuts, but there is a structure to go through to sort of build that and go through those tough conversations and come out the other end. Right. For an entrepreneurial leader who's listening, this might sound like this structure might kill creativity or something like that. First, is that true? Does that happen? Or do you find that you're actually able to do more and be able to still have new ideas and implement them quickly in this sort of structure? That is a great question. I think one of the things that I see that kills creativity the quickest is people feeling like things are arbitrary and uncertain and chaotic. And I find when I talk to people and they just have this big uncertainty about how things work and where they fit in, that's when they tend to shut down and not bring things up because they'll say, you know, I brought something up once and this person shot me down or no one knew what to do with it or just kind of floated into the ether. And so I decided it wasn't worth it. So I think actually that's the biggest creativity killer is not having a clear structure for your organization, not having clarity for people about how they fit in and where they fit in, especially what they have ownership over. I think creativity is created actually when I feel like I have clear ownership and people are expecting me to do a great job and get results. So I think that what EOS system has helped us do is create the kind of structure where people can be creative and know kind of where they fit into the big picture, but especially know what they own and what they have ownership over. And so then they know like they can be creative and they can know how to work on things. And if problems arise, they now have a system to deal with the problems that they know who to go to or how to make sure that that problem is addressed quickly so it doesn't stifle their creativity. Gotcha. And that makes a lot of sense, especially for people who... Maybe they're not quite as risk-taking, you know, they like stability more in their workplace. And so I could see where it would allow them to be able to take more risk internally with the organization because they have that set structure. I know you've worked with other nonprofits helping them implement this traction system with their organization. For nonprofits who are thinking about trying something like this, where should they start? Yeah, I think first it's just eye-opening for any nonprofit leader to just ask their people what they think about the clarity of the vision and the clarity of their own roles in the organization. Just take a bit of a gut check of what are things really like for the people in the organization and are things well set up for them to know where they exist and know what they're supposed to be doing next to carry out the vision. Even something as simple as asking people what the vision is. It's surprising how often you get different answers from people in the organization 
And that's an area where you probably want consistency. You probably want people to all think that you're doing the same thing. So I think a good place to start is just do a bit of a gut check. And I'd be happy to provide some questions that were helpful to us to ask people in the company, but find out where you're at as an organization. And if there's some glaring things there, then that would help you to know where to start. So that would be one thing. The second thing is what I mentioned before about the 90-day world and the rocks. I think that is just like what was for us is a pretty simple place for people to start to gain some traction pretty quickly and create at least a system where they can start to see where there are questions or issues or lack of clarity for people. It's amazing how much you can spot in the first couple times with that. People come up with rocks that seem like they don't have anything to do with the goals. That's a great conversation point to find out why that person is kind of out of sync with everyone else and so on. And especially if you see it a couple times in a row, that's when the learning really starts to show up. So that I think is a really practical tool that again, I'm happy to help people with, or I can point them toward the book traction. There's a chapter in there about rocks. So it's really easy to find and take a read of that. And I think that's a great tool to start with to help provide traction. What I like about that is you're building in this natural accountability, but you're also seeing if people aren't understanding perhaps their role or their job. Because like you said, if they're picking something that just doesn't make sense, maybe they're approaching the job differently and there's something you don't know as a manager or as a leader. But on the other hand, maybe it's something where there's a skills gap and what they're actually supposed to be doing hasn't been communicated that well. And so you can address those early on before it's some issue with them as an employee. That's right. Yeah, it also helps you see areas where you're not being clear with people about what you need them to do. Right. And how did you go about asking those questions? Was that done like through a survey? Was that done through interviews? Like, how did you do that internally? A couple of things we did. One of them was a survey that we asked of everyone and had kind of a series of questions. But even more simple than that, the follow-up we did to that was just to have the conversation with the leadership team. I think probably every organization has what they at least think of as their leadership team. Might be three people, might be seven, whatever it might be. But starting with that group of what do they think about where we are as an organization? How would they rate the company on things like clarity of vision, how well we execute, how good our meetings are, some of that really practical stuff and see what the leadership team is because kind of as goes the leadership team, so goes the rest of the organization. So I think you can start there in a really simple way. Great. So one of the things we haven't mentioned or hasn't come up during this interview is FGA is a virtual organization. You only have a couple of staff who work out of your headquarters in Naples, but the rest of the staff's dispersed all around the country. Does that help or hinder the use of traction or how have you found that? Yeah, that's right. So we have remote staff. It's all remote staff. I think it's actually made it really necessary and really helpful to have the system because with remote staff, often what people try to figure out is, what are they actually doing? How do we make sure, how do we direct them when we can't see them, we can't walk into their office? And so it can be a bit of a communication puzzle. But having a system, you know, some of the tools that we've been able to use, which is really all the traction system is, is a set of tools, gives you what a remote employee needs. They need clarity, right, about what they're supposed to be working on. They need clarity about what their role is in the organization and who they go to when they have questions because they can't just walk down the hall and ask 10 people. They need to have all those things, and that's what the system is designed to do. It would work fine for in-office as well, but for instance, knowing with my team what their rocks are so that I can see what the most important things that they're focusing on. And then we also have, like I mentioned, the once-a-week meeting that's very consistent agenda, the same agenda every time. It's very efficient with just checking in on where people are at and spending a lot of time just solving problems and talking together about problems. That helps a lot so you're not 
wasting lots of times on meetings, which tends to happen sometimes in a remote environment. And then just some of the other tools around, we'll make sure that we work on that I know what people are doing without having to check in all the time. So we don't have this dynamic where I think like, I don't know what my people are doing. I don't know what they're working on. Well, I do. I know. And I check in on it once a week. And if there's a problem, there's a bunch of different ways they can raise the problem. And we have a structure to deal with the issues as they arise. So it really helps, I think, to take away some of the downsides that people might see in a remote environment and allow people the ability to focus and for people to set up their workplace in the way that they work best, whether it's schedule or time or desk or room or whatever it might be. That's the exciting and really neat thing about remote is people can build their work around their own style. And I don't have to interfere with that in any way because the system allows me to take care of kind of the things I might be worried about otherwise. Right. When you can hire such more talented people, since they don't have to all be in the Naples area, for example, you can hire someone who's extraordinary who lives in Wisconsin or something like that. I think that's another important point that you brought up is it's easy as leaders and managers to think that someone else's job is always seems easier than it actually is and should take less time than we think it does because we've either haven't done that work in a long time or we just forget how much time like even just basic things take. So I think having that weekly call where you're getting to wrestle with the problems they're facing probably makes you check in more on the actual realities of the day to day that your people are experiencing. I think the one other thing it helps with is dealing with the little irritations that build up. Even that what you just mentioned, I think that's a great example of I, as a leader, can have this little thought of, wow, that took you a long time to do that. Like, what's your problem? And if I let that build up in my mind, it'll start to color like how I see you, right? It'll make it harder for me to be objective about you as a person. But if it really is an issue, having a structure where I can bring up an issue in kind of a safe place, get an answer to it, actually see what reality is, which is our job as leaders, is to see reality and pass it on. And then solve it and move on without having this sort of weird assumption about someone. In a remote environment, it's even more important because I can really come up with assumptions and never have them changed. And it just colors my picture of what someone is like without any of it being real. And so you need some kind of a structure where people can feel safe to bring up, here's an issue I'm having, here's a question I've had. And so we're not 100% there, but we have a structure that allows that. And we're getting a lot better, I think, at people being able to bring those things up, have them dealt with and move on. And honestly, that's the kind of stuff that kills productivity or you lose people over eventually. It's not usually actually like big problems. It's a bunch of little problems that add up. Right. Well, and another point I've just thought of listening to you talk is from the employee's perspective and like they can see what their boss is working on. Because sometimes that's a bit of a black box. You know, what does a COO actually do? You know, like, you know, they're doing work. But when you see, okay, wow, there's some like big strategic things they're working on that I can see if those don't go well, you know, a lot of other things don't go well. So it kind of gives transparency both ways on that. So to start closing out the interview, we like to give people challenges of what one thing they can do and implement based on this conversation and listening to this podcast. So what's one thing you challenge a nonprofit leader to think about or test after listening to this interview? Yeah, I think I would go back to the 90-day world just to sound like a broken record a little bit, but it really is a great spot to start. I wish I had done it when I was early on in my career. So I would encourage you know anyone listening to take a look at their fundraising goals, maybe for the department structure or for a certain number of asks or whatever it might be that's on their list. I'm sure you've given them some things if they've gone through your class. And 
break that down into a 90-day world of what I want to have different in 90 days, what progress do I want to make in 90 days, and what needs to happen between now and then. What are the three or four most important things? Not the little daily stuff, but the big things that need to change or need to do differently that may get crowded out by urgent stuff otherwise. And then have each member of the team do that. So there's kind of shared transparency and people are in it together and just tackle that little tool to help create traction on those pieces. We did that about a year and a half ago. And it's some of the things I think you've probably taught in your class about prospecting. We realized we really need to get better at prospecting. And so that's a whole kind of process of, well, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be better at it? And how do we break that down? And once we'd figured out our goals long-term, this is what needs to be better. Then we broke them down into 90-day goals. And each person had their sort of set of them. And we were able to make really steady progress on a really big thing that otherwise would have just sort of ended up, I think, being sort of the last thing on people's lists of, we got to figure out this whole new way to do it somehow and get started some way. And that's just tough when you have a really busy job anyway. But having those 90-day goals allowed us to be now in a very different place as an organization in our prospecting process and results than we were just like 18 months ago. And I don't think that would have been possible without having that regular check-in and that regular kind of short-term goals that we could lay out. Right. And I think a good point there is it's something where you're starting having that 90 days gives it time to figure out some of the bugs and like kind of get it going versus a one month. You might not make that much progress in the month, even if you're working really hard on it, just because it's new or difficult. And would you recommend they have a weekly meeting if they're trying this? Or what about the meeting side where you talked about that earlier? I would, but I think if someone is interested, I'd love to just give them the sort of set agenda that we've used and found really valuable. Because I think that's one piece where If you're going to do it, you might as well try to implement the full meeting agenda, which again, is just designed to make sure that you do check in on where people are at, but you don't spend too much time on that and go down rabbit trails. And you spend most of your time in the meeting solving the most important issues that have come up in that past week and getting them done and moving on. So there's a little bit of a technique to it. It's pretty easy to learn. There's a great little video that I can send to you to send to anyone that asks or send it directly to folks that would help them start to think about meetings a little differently. But that's definitely something too, where you can very quickly move into a much more efficient and better meeting model by just following the template. Great. And we can put that in the show notes on the podcast here on the website. So people can do that. So to wrap up, where can listeners find out more about you, Jonathan, and FGA? Sure. So FGA is on the web at vthefga.org. They can take a look at all the work that we're doing there. If they want to find out about me, I'd be happy to provide my contact information to you. I'd love to talk to anyone that wants to reach out. Any of the things I've talked about today or just brainstorming through kind of challenges that they're, they're struggling with. So happy to give you email and phone number and chat with anyone that would like to. Perfect. Well, we'll include those in the show notes so people can reach out to you, Jonathan. Well, thanks so much for sharing all this information, Jonathan. It's been a great interview and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Seven Figure Fundraising and our training, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. Finally, if there's one person you know would benefit from hearing this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. Thanks. Thanks.